You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. 1437 and you know it's a Monday when we talk to the naked scientist so uh, we how do we know him when we love him um, for his ability to I guess get down to the nub of all your difficult uh, sometimes bizarre but always intriguing questions of course Chris Smith is the chair of science at the University of Cambridge so get calling on 011-883-0702 answering all of your science and general questions good afternoon Chris hello <laughs> Always a pleasure, and uh, I think let's just get right into it. I trust you well on this uh, on this Monday. I'm ready and raring to go. Let's see what you can throw at us. Fantastic, Keith and Ethel. I hope you brought your A game. Good afternoon. Welcome to the program. <laughs> what is your question for the naked Hi. scientist? Hi, thanks. Very Hi, much. Chris. Um, Hi, Keith. Mm-hmm. No problem, um, Doctor Chris. Um, I have a question regarding how effective vaccines are. Preventing a person from being infected with COVID. So, in a recent report from the UK looking at about 40,000 hospital admissions, 75 of the patients were unvaccinated, 23 partially, and 2% roughly uh, vaccinated. So, we know the vaccines are very effective in reducing admissions and, and particularly deaths. But at the same time, the UK is recording about 30,000 new infections a day. So the question is, do we have any data or test data as to what proportion of these new cases are people that are either unvaccinated, partially vaccinated or fully vaccinated? Hi, Keith. Good questions. The answer is we do have quite a bit of data on this. And as you say, we're very reassured by the performance of the vaccines at keeping people out of hospital because they're 95% effective. In other words, you're 20 times less likely to develop severe disease if you've been vaccinated than if you haven't, and which is actually where we wanted to be. Because when we first sort of launched into the endeavour to try to come up with vaccines, the instruction that Boris Johnson gave to Kate Bingham who led our vaccine task force in the UK was we need to stop people dying but a sort of side show that the vaccines put on is whether or not they can prevent infection and we didn't know whether or not they would be able to completely we had some data from animal studies that suggested they could reduce the rates of infection but not necessarily prevent it and this has been borne out by observation what we know is that when people are first vaccinated they develop very high levels of antibody and those high levels of antibody are very good at protecting against infection but after a short period of time maybe a few months four months or so the level of antibody in the bloodstream begins to fall and as it does so people become susceptible to infection but because you need far more antibody to stop infection than to stop severe disease people are still protected from severe disease but can still catch the infection and I am seeing a lot of patients here in the UK now who are in their 70s and 80s who if they had caught coronavirus in the pre-vaccine era would have been really very severely unwell and they don't have any symptoms at all a lot of them so that says yes you can catch the infection many people are catching it and that's partly why we're seeing more cases most of the cases we're seeing are actually because we've got a significant proportion of people who are still unvaccinated in certain sectors of society particularly younger people but but on the whole older people are highly vaccinated they are highly protected and although they're protected from infection about half the time that still means that half the time they're not thanks very Dr. Much. Chris just to jump on Keith 
Thanks, Keith. Thanks for your question. Just to jump on Keith's uh, question, Dr. Chris, and I don't know if you spoke to this, but I, I, you didn't, I didn't hear you using the term breakthrough infection, right? Um, do you prefer not to use that? Is that not a preferred term in the UK? It does give a sense that we um, scientists don't expect breakthroughs uh, or infections once vaccinated as though it's a surprise as opposed to it can happen, right? It's possible. Uh, it, it wasn't intentional, my use of uh, words ah, or okay. not using <laughs> words, but uh, you're right mm-hmm. that these do represent breakthrough infections, but it really comes down to what we judge to be immunity against this new coronavirus. Okay. Because even if people have been infected with the new coronavirus, they are not immune indefinitely. And there are many cases and many instances where people catch it again. And this is because what we regard as immunity against some classes of infection may be lifelong. For instance, if you have your MMR vaccine, you are immune for life, in most cases, against measles. But with coronaviruses, immunity tends to tail off with time. It's just the nature of the beast. It's the way in which these viruses interact with our immune system and how we sustain an immune response. And so you do see over time a diminuendo in the immune response and you reach a threshold at which there's not enough of a response to stop you becoming infected, but there's still enough of a response there that you don't become severely unwell and that's probably the pattern that we're going to see for the world going forward here actually where this thing will Mm -hmm. circulate in future indolently through the population of the world and people will catch this when they're young chiefly mainly with symptoms of a common cold if any but that will endow them with a lifetime of of partial immunity that they will periodically top up by natural infection or possibly boosting and it will then drop away again until they become susceptible they'll catch it again they'll top up their immunity it'll drop away until they become susceptible and that pattern will repeat through life but crucially because most of those infections are going to occur in younger people when they're at very low risk from severe disease when they're an older person Mm -hmm. and they've aged they will still have that immunity with them and they will be as though they've been vaccinated and therefore they will be at very low risk despite this being COVID. Mm, Oh, to find ourselves in that situation sooner rather than later. Uh, Let's carry on taking calls now. Umpa in the East Rand, thanks for your patience. Your question for the Naked Scientist. Go ahead, please. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon. Uh, Hi, afternoon. Uh, My question uh, for the Naked Scientist is, why is it that for a VP shunt, which is for the treatment of idiopathic intracranial hypertension, is so sensitive to weather changes. So, i.e., if it rains, you tend to get more ill, and if you're in Dubai, you tend to be better because the weather changes are not uh, like how South African weather is like. Hi, Mpo. I, what you're referring to is the procedure where if a person has fluid inside the brain, which is quite normal, but it can't get out of the brain and back into the bloodstream, this produces a condition called hydrocephalus. And one treatment for that is that you put a tube through into the holes in the middle of the brain called the ventricles where that fluid gets made. And you run the tube down through the person's neck and into their abdominal cavity, and that's the peritoneum. And in this way, you can drain off the excess fluid so the person doesn't build up pressure inside their head and have all the consequences and complications of hydrocephalus. 
I've not heard of people saying that this is weather dependent though, because this shouldn't be susceptible to weather in any particular great grand scheme of things, unless I'm missing something. I've never heard anybody say that. Well, uh, it may I be that that's a, a subjective interpretation by some people who've had this procedure done. I, I know many people who have. They've never said to me that they get a difference in terms of how it performs or how they feel in line with the weather any more than other people mm. say that they have good days and bad days in line with the weather. So if anyone knows different, do tell me. But as far as I know, there's no reason why that should apply. Sure. Oh, okay. All right. Well, do you tell you us. And uh, <laughs> and you can just send a, a message on 072-702-1702. When we come back from the short break, we're going to take... 702. The Naked Scientist. 1447 on 702. We carry on our conversation with uh, Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. And uh, let's go to the phone lines now right away. Let's get those questions answered. Lee and Call at Gardens, thanks for calling in. Your question to Dr. Chris. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. Good day. Um, my question to Dr. Chris is about the common house fly. Um, I've noticed that sometimes they fly in the center of a room uh, in a geometric or triangular Formation as though there's a, an unseen Bermuda Triangle in the center of the room, and then they fly off, and sometimes they return to the same spot uh, and continue uh, continue their mysterious meandering. Uh, why do they do so? Uh, hi, Lee. I don't know that I've seen flies behave in quite the way you describe, but I've certainly seen them whiz round in a disorientated fashion in rooms. And this is because flies have quite good eyesight. And with their compound eyes, they actually keep track of where the sun is and a light source, and they use it to navigate by. And when they're in a room, of course, they get confused because there's often a light bulb or a light source or multiple light sources in the room. And when they would fly along relative to the sun, the sun would stay in a relatively straightforward position because it's so far away that relative to them it's not going to move. But when you're in a small room with a, a small light source very close to you and you fly very quickly, the position of that light source relative to you changes a lot. And so it throws your navigation off. And this is why flies go in circles around light bulbs. It's why moths go in circles around light bulbs. So it may well be that what you're seeing is one manifestation of the flies actually being confused by the light coming into the room, either through a window or through the light or light sources in the room. And that's throwing off their navigation. And because it's throwing it off by the same <laughs> amount every will. time, they go around <laughs> in a circle. Oh, apologies for that. Um, I forgot to mute my mic. A passerby at the museum just uh, commenting and saying hi to us. Sorry about that, uh, Dr. Chris. Go ahead. Oh, finished. Okay, fantastic. Thanks so much, Lee, for your question. I hope that answers uh, that answers um, your question there about flies. Let's uh, move on over to Rueda in on Decker's Park. Rueda, good afternoon. Promise I won't interrupt your question. Go ahead. What have you got for Dr. Chris? Good afternoon. Uh, Okay, just my question is, we've taken the Pfizer vaccine, first and second one. Now it's recommended we take the booster. Why need, do we need to take that booster? And are we protected if we don't take the booster? Hi, Rueda. The answer is that when you take the first dose, you get pretty much a, a good response. But it's, it's a bit like building a house. You've got the walls, you've got the windows, the doors and the roof but they've not been stormproofed yet. With the second dose, what that does, the booster, 
sorry, the second dose, what that does is it consolidates the building you've put up. It makes sure that the roof is nailed down hard. It makes sure the windows are waterproof. It gives you a good, solid immune response. But like all things, it needs maintenance, your house. And so you've got to come back and uh, you've got to paint the, paint the woodwork. You've got to make sure that the roofing felt isn't coming loose or the uh, iron on the roof needs nailing down again. And that's what the booster does. By coming back a period of time later, you remind your immune response of what it should have built a response against. You delve into the immune memory that is the recipe for how to make that response and you consolidate it further. Uh, we don't know how long people are going to continue to need boosters for, but what we do know is that with time, people's antibody levels do fall. And if you push them back up with a booster, you reduce the risk of people succumbing either to infection, as we were discussing earlier, or Better still, you prevent them getting severe disease, which is what we want to do. We don't know if more doses downstream of this initial booster will be necessary, either because by then the pandemic will be over or because by then people will have made a comprehensive enough immune response that they're then protected for the long term. We don't know yet. We're doing those experiments at the moment to find out. All right. Thank you. Thanks for your question, Rueda. Really appreciate it. Um, let's move on over now to Brian in Rudibert. I think we'll probably have time for two uh, two more questions. Welcome to the program, Brian. Your question um, for Dr. Chris. Good afternoon. Um, the question is quite simple. Eight-year-old daughter would like to know why when she blows balloons, does she get a headache? Hmm. Hi, Brian. Well, when one looks at the head on a brain scan, you can see that many of the bones at the front part of your head, above you, the bridge of your nose, in your cheeks, and actually right in the center of your, uh, between your eyes, they are air sinuses or sacs. And they're, they're actually the sinuses. We refer to them as sinuses. And when you have infection in them, that's why you get sinusitis infection in your sinuses. But they're all connected to your nasal pathways and they have mucus in them which drains out into your nose and then you can swallow it. And the purpose of having cavities and not solid bone is that solid bone is really, really heavy, whereas if you have air spaces, it means that you have all of the strengths of having the walls of the bone, but none of the costs of being really heavy. Otherwise, our heads would need much bigger muscles to support them, and, and it would put much more load on our bodies. So by having these air spaces, you, you save the, the bone a bit. The reason that she might get a headache is when you blow your nose, to blow out through your nose, you're increasing the pressure in your airways. So you push from behind to dislodge stuff. And the stuff that could be up there could be mucus, for example, or occasionally foreign bodies, things that shouldn't be in the airways. But that pressure will be transmitted to those connected sinuses. It's a bit like if you imagine a corridor and there are rooms opening off the corridor, the sinuses are like rooms opening off the corridor where the corridor are your nasal passages. And so when you blow or have wind going down that corridor, it's also going to blow the doors open of some of those rooms down the corridor. And that's what she's doing. She's transferring the pressure into her sinuses. If there is some mucus in there or occasionally there could be infection if you've had a cold or something or something else is wrong, then that increase in pressure can irritate the lining of the sinus. And there are nerves that run through the floors of the sinus to your teeth, for example, in some cases. And this can irritate and it can produce pain. So that may be why it's happening. If it's a new thing that's temporary in response to a recent cold and she's otherwise fine and it goes away in a few days' time, I think that's absolutely fine. If this is something that keeps on happening, then maybe you need to go and get that checked out to make sure there's nothing going on. Thanks, Doc. Let me translate that to the eight-year-old, but thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you very All much. All the best. <laughs> Thanks.
All right, Mutsubi and Midrand, uh, thank you for your patience. Go ahead, welcome to the program. Your question for the Naked Scientist. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. I want Hi. to find out, um, in June, I tested positive for COVID. And one of the, 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 the things I was experiencing was uh, upper body pain, uh, discomfort. It felt like some spasms. Um, that stayed with me for some time. In fact, I started to almost spread to the, to the, to the right hand side of my shoulder. Um, and lately I've been having these things on, but feels like neck spasms. Um, I have been seeing a, a chiropractor for, for, for about three sessions or so, and that pain has not necessarily gone away. Now, I wanted to find out People have been complaining about uh, after the jab, they have this pain on the right, on the arm. Um, to find out if it's safe to, for one to go for a jab now, or would you recommend that this thing to to, to settle, or or what what is, what is the, the the recommendation by the naked doctor? <laughs> naked scientists <laughs> rather than naked doctor that that sure. could summon up all kinds of unpleasant thoughts couldn't it um the answer here is that when you when you have coronavirus infection obviously if you get a cough you may well cough quite hard and you can pull various muscles and you can also get irritation to the rib cage where the bony ribs join the cartilage of the rib cage because there are lots of joints in your rib cage and they can become irritated and it's called costochondritis you can get that in response to a number of different acute viral infections and it can take a while to settle down and you tend to find that in certain positions or with certain movements it's more uncomfortable. At the same time, with people as, as we get older, we tend to get wear and tear in the spinal column, the vertebrae that form our back and our neck bones. And occasionally if we end up in certain positions or coughing a lot, bending, it can irritate the articulations between those those bones and especially if they've got a bit thickened it can apply pressure to nerves that come out of the spinal cord at different levels and you get pains in different bit of your bits of your body provided by those nerves supplied by those nerves so if this is a, a thing which is getting worse it's not improving with simple remedies like painkillers and that kind of thing you you probably should get this investigated because it may well be that there's something that, that you need a bit of help for or, or, or which could be put right but if it's just standard mechanical pain or from the cartilage, I can reassure you that will actually get better. It will go away. Does that answer your question? It does. Um, however, I wasn't coughing. I must say, one of I had a bit of a mild symptoms of COVID. Oh, that's lucky. Yeah. Well, I mean, what what I can speculate is that because this is an inflammatory condition, when you catch any kind of infection, it causes inflammation. There can sometimes be spillover of the immune response and the inflammation into other tissues. And often what I've called costochondritis, where you get inflammation of the cartilage around the ribcage, sometimes joints also become stiff and sore when you have acute infections. This can be just a sign or a signature of the immune system gearing up to fight something off. And in the process, other tissues can get caught in the crossfire for a while. And it may well be that that is what is going on. But really, my advice would be the same, which is that try simple remedies first, simple painkillers and that kind of thing. If this does not improve, and it should improve with simple remedies like mm -hmm. that fairly promptly, then you should get it investigated in case there's something else going on. 
All right. Well, Dumi, all the best. Thank you so much for that question. Um, Dr. Chris Smith, always a pleasure. Um, really appreciated the insight you were able to give us into jabs as well as COVID-19 this week. Yes, and of busy course, COVID week this week, huh? It is, it is, but all incredibly useful questions So, and very pertinent for all of us. So really appreciate it. You keep well until next week, Monday. And you. <laughs> See you soon. That's the Naked Scientist, absolutely. And, of course, uh, coming up after the 3 o'clock news, Afternoon Drive with John Perlman. Why, uh, lines, rather, are wide open on 011-883-0702.